1: Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Matthew 19 and 20, Mark 10, and Luke 18. Briefly, as an overview, what we're going to talk about today, we will talk about Jesus answering some questions about divorce and then him blessing the little children. Following this, he's going to have an interchange with what's known as the rich young ruler. And with that, will come some questions about wealth and what to do with wealth. After this, Jesus will give the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And then, the mother of James and John makes a special request of Jesus. And after this, Jesus gives the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. And then, Jesus tells the story in Luke of the prayers of a Pharisee and a publican. And then finally, We will conclude this podcast talking about the experience in Luke 18 where blind Bartimaeus, a man who sat by the highway side begging, is healed of his blindness. And so that's kind of where we're
0: covering today. Now, we're going to follow Matthew 19 and 20 mostly as kind of our backbone. We'll bring Mark and Luke in as they add insights to that, and then we'll jump to Luke 18 and cover the things that were not in Matthew 19 and 20. Almost all of Mark 10 is included in these verses, so we won't necessarily turn to Mark all by itself. So let's jump to Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus has asked the question, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? He says, Have you not read?
1: He which made them at the beginning made them male and female. And he said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh." What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. I really like verse 6, especially as a Latter-day Saint. There's a lot of contention and questions that people have today in traditional Christianity, and I've heard people say things like, there's no marriage in heaven, marriage is just a part-time thing, or it's just here for mortality, but I really like verse 6 because If we do a careful analysis of that beginning in Genesis, it's God that's joining Adam and Eve, and then Jesus kind of ratifies it and says in verse 6, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Now, when it comes to divorce, there were essentially a couple schools of thought in Jesus's day about marriage and divorce, and Jesus is taking the position that we shouldn't get divorced, that it's something that we should avoid. Now, I also acknowledge that we live in a world where divorce does happen, and we've talked about this before, but I briefly want to mention it again. There's a talk by James E. Faust where he addresses this, and we put the full quote in the show notes. But to be brief, I want to just read this part where he says, I confess that I do not claim the wisdom or authority to definitively state what is just cause for divorce. Only the parties to the marriage can determine this. They must bear the responsibility for the train of consequences that inevitably follow if these covenants are not honored. In my opinion, says Elder Faust just cause for divorce should be nothing less serious than a prolonged and apparently irredeemable relationship that is destructive of a person's dignity as a human being. I think that about settles it. I think that Elder Faust is really hitting the nail on the head that marriage is a covenant and we should take it seriously. And essentially, what marriage does is it is a protection for children. It's a place whereby children can grow in a family that loves each other. And as the mother and father have mutual respect and positive regard for each other, that makes a safe place where children can grow, and it really is the schoolhouse to where we can become like our Father in Heaven. It's a laboratory where we can practice the principles of true Christian living. But at the end of the day, the parties to the marriage have to determine it.
0: And I think there's a little bit more than divorce here. I think there's a warning that let's not divide asunder what God has intended to be unified. And I think there's a warning to everyone. I think the proclamation on the family is a united effort by prophets, seers, and revelators to wave their arms saying, the greatest danger we see coming is to the family. So let's not be the reason that it falls apart. There's enough forces trying to pull it apart. Let's not divide asunder what God put together. There's so many forces and I think one of the great messages of the war chapters of the Book of Mormon, when Amalekiah attacks, he is slaughtered. Captain Moroni is ready for him. Evil has no power over good, and the war should have been over after that first battle. But in the very next few chapters, the Nephites forget who the enemy is, and they start fighting amongst themselves. And the moment I start thinking my family, my spouse, the people of my church, my friends and neighbors, the moment I begin to think that the enemy is there, that's the moment I open up the door to the real enemy. When the Nephites started fighting amongst themselves, it opened the door to the Lamanites coming in and conquering those cities. Now, once you lose a fortified city, it will cost you dearly to get it back. Major message from the Book of Mormon is don't forget who the real enemy is. Let's not divide asunder what God has intended to be unified.
1: Absolutely. After this interchange about divorce, it's interesting that we go, at least in Matthew, right to the topic of children. Now, this is in Matthew 19, 13 through 15, but I'm going to read it from Luke. I think it reads better in Luke. So here it is. This is Luke 18, 15 through 17. And they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. So the way I'm reading this is Jesus is in the crowds, and the people want Jesus to touch their children. And Jesus's apostles are trying to create space whereby that doesn't happen. I can kind of see them trying to protect Jesus. So we're now in the space of his ministry where he's well known. Verse 16 reads, Jesus called them unto him, and he said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Jesus is this individual that sees the value of children. Now, in the society that Jesus lived in, children were often overlooked. And so we see that this is the God who sees everyone, even the children. And then from this, we read this in Matthew, it's also in Luke, but it's also in Mark 10, that there is an individual who comes to Jesus and says, good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now I'm reading this out of the Matthew account, Matthew 19, verse
0: 16. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. There's the first law. The law of obedience. And the real question here is going to be, is there more than that first law? And he said unto him, which?
1: Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. And he goes on, and he goes through some of the commandments. Now, these commandments were very common in Judaism in Jesus's day. The expectation was that everyone did this. And so the man's response to Jesus is, yeah, I've already been doing that. He uses this phrase in Matthew 19 verse 20, what lack I yet? And then Jesus hits him with this. Verse 21, Jesus says, if thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. The young man heard the saying, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions.
0: So there is a law that follows obedience. All these things have I kept from my youth up. I have been obedient. Is there more required of me than obedience? And the answer is yes. You are holding on to things that are keeping you out of heaven. So not only do I need to obey, but I need to let go of the obstacles of obedience. I need to let go of the things that pull me back. And his heart was being tugged by the things of this world. And so the Lord says, you've got to obey the law of sacrifice, and you have to give up everything telestial and terrestrial. In his particular case, Jesus knew that the tug on his heart was his wealth, and that given the choice of giving up his wealth or choosing the kingdom of heaven, he would choose his wealth. And so that was his specific assignment. Putting myself in this story, if I were to say to the Lord, All these things have I kept from my youth up, what lack I yet? He would probably look at my heart and he might give me a separate request. Every one of us have to obey the law of sacrifice, but selling all that I have is not necessarily my requirement. My requirement is to give up the things that my heart is holding onto that I cannot take into the celestial kingdom with me.
1: You know, culturally, one commentator kind of put this in perspective, and he wrote, Jesus's demands are more radical than later Jewish charity laws even permitted, lest the benefactor reduce himself to poverty. Later regulations limited charity to 20%, which was nonetheless considerable on top of tithes and taxes. And so what Jesus is asking of this young man would have been considered an extreme test, greater than anything anyone else had demanded. This is not something I think that is to be, as you've stated, Bryce, universally applied. Now, there were some Christians in early Christianity, and they would go and make vows of poverty, and some of them would even live in caves and beg for bread. And I just don't see Jesus saying, hey, that's how we're going to build the kingdom, by making a massive group of beggars just begging for food because they have nothing. Clearly, you can't build a kingdom with that. And so I like how you say, this is Jesus specifically honing in on this person's
0: specific thing that he needs to do. And it wasn't his money that Jesus wanted. It's his heart that Jesus wanted. I love how Joseph F. Smith, the sixth president of the church, tells the rest of the story in gospel doctrine. He said, And we are told that he turned away sorrowfully because he had great possessions. He would not hearken to nor obey the law of God in this matter. Not that Jesus required of the young man to go and sell all that he possessed and give it away. That is not the principle involved. The rich young man may enter into the kingdom of heaven as freely as the poor if he will bring his heart and affections into subjection to the law of God and to the principle of truth. If he will place his affections upon God, his heart upon the truth, and his soul upon the accomplishments of God's purposes, and not fix his affections on his hopes upon the things of the world. Here is the difficulty, and this was the difficulty with the young man. He had great possessions, and he preferred to rely upon his wealth rather than forsake all and follow Christ." If he had possessed the spirit of truth in his heart to have known the will of God and to have loved the Lord with all his heart and his neighbor as himself, he would have said to the Lord, "'Yea, Lord, I will do as you require. I will go and sell all that I have and give it to the poor.'" Now listen to what President Smith says. "'If he had had it in his heart to do this, that alone might have been sufficient.'" and the demand would probably have stopped there.
1: That's good. He does go away sorrowing. We read that in verse 22, where it says, "'The young man heard the saying, and he went away sorrowful, "'for he had great possessions.'" And then Jesus said to his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, for years, I've heard that there was a gate called the eye of the needle that the camel could go through, but it had to get on its knees and kind of like shimmy through this gate. I mean, I've heard that. I don't know if you've ever heard that. All my life. (laughs) So I kind of chase it down and I'm going to begin and end with, I don't know, I wasn't there. I always say that. But I really do like some of these ideas that are shared by different commentators. And this is what D. Kelly Ogden says. He says, the camel going through the eye of a needle does not refer to some hypothetical little gate in or alongside a main city gate through which a camel is supposed to edge his way on its knees after being stripped of its burden. The present writer has seen the remnants of numerous ancient cities and gates throughout the near East. And his conclusion is that such a little gate didn't exist. Such a notion is a figment of the imagination of someone who is probably trying to explain the image without understanding an important figure of speech that Jesus used. I like that quote from Ogden's Where Jesus Walked the Land and Culture of New Testament Times. Now, another quote that really kind of opens this up comes from R.T. France. He's not a Latter-day Saint, but he's kind of talking about the same ideas where he says, More widely adopted has been a suggestion popularized in the 19th century that the eye of the needle was the name for a small gate within the large double gate of a city wall through which pedestrians could enter without the need for the large gates to be opened as they would be difficult for a camel train. It is suggested that a camel might be forced through such a gate with great difficulty, and further spiritual lessons have been extracted from the observation that in order to To do so, it would have to bend its knees and be stripped of its load. This romantic speculation has been repeated so often that it is sometimes treated as established fact. There is, in fact, no evidence at all for such usage of the eye of the needle, either in non-biblical sources or in ancient commentaries on the Gospels. So whether you read R.T. France or Brother Ogden, they're kind of saying the same idea. And so I always say, whenever I hear that, I say, that's really interesting. I would love to read more about that. So if anybody has anything that can verify this, I'd love to read it. But that's essentially what Brother Ogden says and what R.T. France says.
0: Now, before you go on, Mike, I'm going to geek out a little bit and do a little Greek. Yes, this is Bryce doing a little Greek. Maybe it's an error. The word kamilos with an I is the Greek word for rope, while "kamelos" with an E is the word for camel. So maybe it was a typo, And what Jesus really said was, it would be easier for a rope to go through the eye of a needle than camel. Just throwing that out there.
1: (laughs) Either way, it's hard. Yep. I love this quote by Hugh Nibley, and he says this, "'We are told that the apostles were amazed beyond measure when he told them that. They didn't know about any gates through which a camel comes.' That's an invention of modern-day criticism. So there's our third witness saying, you know what, there's no little gate that camels go through. But then Hugh Nibley says this, there is no evidence anywhere at all that there was a gate called the eye of the needle. No, Jesus really meant it. It's impossible. You've got to get rid of your treasures. I love that quote. And Hugh Nibley talks a lot about this in his writings, this idea of, am I holding on to my treasures? Because if I am... I'm going to miss the kingdom of God. There's an inverse relationship between treasures and revelation. And when the Nephites are seeking treasures, they're not getting the angels. And so really, this is an invitation for us to really think about, for me personally, for all of us, what do we value? Now, on, the, on, on another level, the kingdom of God has to have treasure. It has to have land in order to redeem It has to have treasure in order to help people to live consecration. And so I understand the purpose that money has. But for me as an individual, am I letting that stop me on my journey? And I think we
0: need to rethink these things. Maybe a joke will help. There's a joke about a rich man who dies and goes to heaven, and he's lamenting that he can't bring his riches. So St. Peter says, all right, I will let you go back and bring one thing. And so he heads back, and he's looking back through his wealth, and he's deciding which of all of his wealth objects should he take into heaven. He decides to take a solid gold brick. So he grabs a solid gold brick, puts it in a bag, and carries it into heaven. And when he gets there, Peter asks, what did you bring? And he opens up the bag and takes a look. And Peter says, pavement? You brought pavement? I think the idea here is, where is your heart? Are you holding on to celestial things? Are you holding on to terrestrial things, which are as impossible to take into heaven as a literal camel going through a very real eye of a needle? Yeah. You cannot take terrestrial things into the celestial kingdom. Either you let go or you will follow them into the kingdom where they are going. what you just said
1: with the man with the gold bar reminds me of a story by Dallin H Oaks that he told in April 94 conference. Elder Oaks said a modern illustration of this principle is suggested in the story of two men standing before a casket of their wealthy friend who had just passed away. And one says to the other, how much property did he leave behind? To which his friend responded, he left all of it. (laughs) So it's really that idea, like, what are you chasing? What really matters? Now, the question I think is relevant, and that's verse 25. When the disciples heard this, when they heard Jesus say that about the camel going through the eye of the needle, they said, who then can be saved? Now, we've talked about this in, in other podcasts, but I really appreciate the commentary by Brother Gaskell. Brother Alonzo Gaskill has given some great commentary on this idea. He even wrote a book called Odds Are You're Going to Be Exalted. And his contention is that the plan is a plan of happiness. The plan was not designed for the purpose of damning us, nor is it implemented to bring us misery and suffering. On the contrary, the whole purpose of the plan, the purpose for which it was created and introduced, was the salvation and exaltation of mankind. God offered it as a gift to you and me, a token of his divine, deep, and abiding love for each of his children and for all of his creations. He sought to give us what he has by creating a plan that could make us like he is. We are the blessed recipients of this most wonderful of all designs. And so I think we can kind of have a negative approach to this and we can see this and think, oh my goodness, the plan is set up for us to fail. Or we can read it and say, well, I think the plan is a plan of restoration or a plan of happiness, or as Alma 34 calls it, the great and eternal plan of redemption. Or The plan of mercy, or the plan of salvation. And it really is a plan that can bring us home, but along that journey, we have to get our priorities, and one of those priorities is to learn where wealth sits
0: on the list of things of importance. The other thing we need to understand is that what you're giving up doesn't compare in any way to what you will gain. You are holding on to something of lesser value. And the sooner you give it up, the sooner you realize that what you gave up is so much smaller and insignificant to what you receive. C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful book called The Great Divorce. It is the divorce of heaven and hell. It's a group of ghosts that go on vacation to heaven, and they're invited to stay as long as they give up the one thing they're holding on that's keeping them in hell. Only one of them stays. And he has a red lizard on his shoulder. And he's so embarrassed about that red lizard, he'd rather go back to hell where he's comfortable than stay. Well, a mighty angel shows up, which is obviously Christ, and asks the man if he can destroy the lizard. And after a wonderful little exchange, he finally gives in and says, go ahead. And the angel, or Christ, rips that lizard off his shoulders. And then something wonderful happens. The ghost turns into a man, and the lizard turns into a stallion. Now, watching all of this happen is the main character, which I assume is C.S. Lewis. And he's standing there amazed that the lizard turned into a stallion. So then his tour guide turns to him and says, "'Do ye understand all this, my son?' said the teacher. "'I don't know about all, sir. Am I right in thinking the lizard really turned into the horse?' "'Aye, but it was killed first. You'll not forget that part of the story. I'll try not to, sir. But does it mean that everything, everything that is in us can go on to the mountains?' "'Nothing.' Not even the best and noblest can go on as it now is. Nothing, not even what is the lowest and most bestial, will not be raised again if it submits to death. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Flesh and blood cannot come to the mountains, not because they are too rank, but because they are too weak. What is a lizard? compared to a stallion. Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire, which will arise when lust has been killed. The end of this chapter is trying to express that reality. Why are you holding on to such insignificant things When such greater things are within your reach, let go of the lizard and inherit the stallion. Let go of money and inherit God's kingdom. Let go of lust and inherit the replacement that God has for you. So he ends by saying, everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands... Anything terrestrial and telestial that you gave up in the pursuit of celestialness, you shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit eternal life. I invite you to examine the lesser things that you're holding onto because you can't imagine life without them. But trust that what God will replace them with is so much greater than what you're holding on to. That's cool. So after that question of
1: who can be saved, in Matthew 19, verse 26, Jesus' response is this, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And then Peter answered and said unto him, behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee what shall we have therefore? So that's his question. Okay, what are we going to have? And then Jesus's response to him is, verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel." And everyone that has forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. And that kind of harkens back to what you said earlier, Bryce, about what we're giving up is nothing compared to what will be given. And that expectation of thrones, I think that the apostles were of the belief that they would inherit a throne and rule on earth, and that Jesus would come and reclaim the physical kingdom. And that's going to be undone when Jesus has the discussion with Pilate, where Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And then following his resurrection, his apostles will ask him, okay, Jesus, are you going to take the kingdom now? Can we have our thrones now? And he says, that's not going to happen. Go and preach the gospel to all the world. My kingdom is not of this world. I do want to make note of that word regeneration in verse 28. It's a couple of words. It's palin and genesea, and it's palagenesea. That word in the Greek that's translated as regeneration can mean like a new creation or a new birth. I really like it because there's other passages of Scripture that talk about a new heaven and a new earth, and this re- regeneration is not anastasis, like a resurrection word. This word denotes a rebirth, or a flowering earth. It's kind of, in my view, kind of like a fertility image. Everything's going to be awesome again. And this world will be like a new creation or a new birth, and the Son of Man will sit in his throne of glory. And that's kind of the way I see Jesus, as this cosmic king that's going to sit on a throne where everything is good again. And this is the expectation that Christians for 2,000 years have had. And I think the apostles are going to have an idea that this is going to happen soon. And I think that will help us to kind of understand some of the things that they do and say later in the Gospels when we get closer to the passion or the, the sufferings of the Savior. And so with that, we're now going to look at the next chapter. Now, this is the story of the parable of the
0: laborers in the vineyard, and it has a lot of relevance
1: in our day today.
0: So let me summarize the parable. A man owns a vineyard. He's going to hire people to go work in the vineyard. He starts by hiring people first thing in the morning. So these are the early morning laborers. They are most likely going to labor from 6 a.m. to around 6 p.m. And he agrees with them for a penny. Now that was the going wage. You work all day, you get a penny. A penny was a day's wage. That's fair. Now, the third hour, he goes out and he hires some people and he agrees to pay them whatever is right, I will give you. He goes out the sixth hour, which would be noon, and the ninth hour. So some people will work for 12 hours, some nine, some six, some three. And then he goes out the 11th hour, 5 p.m., and finds people still idle. They wanted to work, but no one hired them. So he says, go to work in my vineyard. And whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So at the end of the day, it's time to pay them. Now the fair wage was a penny for 12 hours. He starts with the five o'clock hires who worked for one hour and he paid them a penny, a day's wage. That was overly generous. This is what I call a mercy moment. They received an abundant blessing from God. They worked one hour and he paid them a penny. Now here's the problem we as human beings make. Because today is someone else's mercy moment, we assume that I'm entitled to the same mercy moment. But when the first came, They supposed that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. They were treated fairly. Now, no one is treated unfairly, but this is what we do. Because I'm being treated fairly by God, and you're having a mercy moment, somehow I am ungrateful, and they murmur. And they say, these last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden of the heat of the day. And the Lord responds and says, friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree with me for a penny? Take that is thine and go thy way, and I will give unto this last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? Now, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland will address this parable in the April 2012 conference, and he will say, Brothers and sisters, there are going to be times in our lives when someone else gets an unexpected blessing or receives some special recognition. May I plead with us not to be hurt and certainly not to feel envious when good fortune comes to another person. We are not diminished when someone else is added upon. We are not in a race against each other to see who is the wealthiest or or the most talented or the most beautiful or even the most blessed. The race we are really in is the race against sin, and surely envy is one of the most universal of those. So I think that's an important point. I should not be offended at the Lord's mercy. And I want to just testify, God is fair. And just because today isn't your mercy day doesn't mean you won't have one. I believe what makes this parable fair is to trust that someday will be my mercy moment so let me rejoice today with you because today is yours, trusting that my mercy moment will come.
1: Bryce, I really like this where Elder Holland says, this is a story about God's goodness, His patience and forgiveness, and the atonement. It's a story about His generosity and compassion. It's a story about grace. It underscores the thought that the thing God enjoys most about being God is the thrill of being merciful. I really like that.
0: Yep. I like to illustrate this point with the story of Dieter Uchtdorf and his red bicycle. When Elder Uchtdorf was a young man, their family immigrated from East Germany to West Germany. His father had been a well-known figure in the community, and the only job he could find was that of a launderer. He cleaned clothes. And he hired his son, Dieter, to deliver those clothes. Now, Dieter had an old iron bike that was heavy and was very difficult to ride up and down the hills of West Germany. He wished he could have a red bike, a nice, sleek, thin red bike like some of his friends had. Now, his friends... We're in a mercy moment and they got the red bike and Dieter got a black iron horse of a bike. And he may very well have not understood why are my friend's fathers nicer to them than my father? Now, fast forward. Young Dieter wants to fly an airplane and he joins the Air Force to learn to fly. He has to pass a physical. During that physical, one of his doctors says, You have a lung disease that's been cured. He was curious about the curing of his lung disease. Dieter Uchdorf knew nothing about a lung disease, nor had he received special treatment to cure it. And then a light went on. It was the iron bike. Pedaling that iron bike up and down the hills of East Germany, cured his lung disease, and now qualified him to be a pilot. Had God given Dieter his mercy moment when he was a boy and given him a red bike, it would have cost him the many airplanes he wanted to fly. I witness to all of you who are having a fair day and might be struggling with someone else who's in their mercy moment, that someday will be your mercy moment. And he will be overly bounteous in his blessings to you. Yeah. After
1: that, Jesus gives a brief explanation of what's about to happen in verse 17. We read, Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the 12 disciples apart in the way, and he said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. Right after he explains what's going to happen, James and John's mother comes to him. And she's described as the mother of Zebedee's children. That's Matthew 20, verse 20. And she says to Jesus, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. And Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. But, He basically says in verse 23, Hey, it's not mine to give, but my father, he's the one that's going to determine this. That's verse 23. This indirect intercession of the mother of James and John was often more effective than a man's direct petition for himself in both Jewish and Roman circles. Women could also get away with making some requests that men could not. In this case, however, it doesn't seem to work. Now, Elder Maxwell talked about this request, and this is what he said. To the mother of James and John, who wanted her sons to sit on Jesus' right and left hands, Jesus noted simply that the father had already made that decision. Jesus understood perfectly the maternal instincts that were at play in the mother's questing for her sons. As always, his response was measured and appropriate. We sometimes ask, don't we, for the things the implications of which we don't fully understand. Some of the most important prayers we have offered are those that were not answered, and we hope that they might have been. There is mentoring in that process too. No wonder the scriptures teach that we are to ask in faith, but we are also to strive and ask and to petition for that which is right. And that's Third Nephi 18, verse 20. Now, In other places, Jesus will say and has said that the 12 will sit on thrones and that they will judge the house of Israel. But in this context, when he asked the question, are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? And they say, we are able. He basically says in verse 23, hey, it's not mine to give, but my father, he's the one that's going to determine this. That's verse 23. But when the 10 heard it, they were upset. It says that they were moved with indignation. And then Jesus gets into this conversation with them about what does it mean to be in charge and how the Gentiles exercise dominion. But in my kingdom, he seems to be saying, the one that is great, verse 27, is the servant the servant of all. And Jesus is going to over and over again manifest this type of behavior.
0: And Mike, he says something that was perhaps one of the most influential statements of my young life and shaped my character. He then said, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. A lot of people are bothered that we have a hierarchical priesthood, because that means one is greater than the other. One is higher and more influential. But the reason that's appropriate in the kingdom of God is because that's not what we do. Hierarchy doesn't mean greater importance. It means greater servant. And the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And if you're going to enlist in his work, you've got to follow that pattern. He didn't come home from a hard day's work and look to be served. He looked to serve. He didn't look at his calling as a, a way to be served, but an opportunity to serve. You must live your life seeking to serve others and to give your life as a ransom for many. Not like he did. But in living that life, I love that President Kimball once said, my life is like my shoes, to be worn out in the service of others. Absolutely.
1: After this discussion in Matthew, we have two blind men that come to be healed, and we're going to kind of combine that story with the blind Bartimaeus episode that's outlined for us in Luke and in Mark. And that's going to be in Luke 10, 35 through 43, and Mark 10, 46 through 52. So we are going to leave Matthew for now, and we are going to go to Luke 18. And in Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, we read the story of the widow and the unjust judge. And essentially, the Savior is going to use this story of this widow that keeps coming back to the judge that won't listen to her. And she keeps saying, like it says in verse 3, avenge me of mine adversary. And she just keeps coming and coming and petitioning the judge. And because she's so persistent, Jesus uses that as a way to liken how we should approach God in prayer. And so this is what he says in verse 1. He spake a parable unto them to this end that man ought always to pray and not to faint. And that's the overarching message of this story is that we should just come to the Lord like the widow in the parable of the unjust judge and continually petition the Lord
0: in faith. Joseph Smith said we should bruise our knuckles on heaven's door beautiful.
1: Elder McConkie says, in this parable, it teaches that if the saints will continue to importune in faith for that which is right, and because their cause is just, though the answers to their prayers may be long delayed, yet finally they will be fulfilled. This idea that if we continue to pray in faith and we pray for the right things, the Lord will bless the saints in their petitions. Then we get into this avenging their own elect. In Luke 18, 6 and 7, it says, The Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? This is a standard Jewish how-much-more argument. If an unjust judge who cared not for widows can dispense justice, How much more will the righteous judge of all the earth, who is known as the defender of widows and orphans, do? And so in this context, essentially, God would administer his justice, especially when Jesus came to judge the earth. This principle is familiar from the Old Testament. God is faithful to act on behalf of and to vindicate his people by his actions in the present, and especially in the future in the Day of Judgment. And so that seems to be one of the main messages here of this parable. And with that, we move into an actual setting where a couple of people are praying. This is only found in Luke. This is the story of two people, a publican, which you remember is a tax collector, definitely hated among the majority of the Jews, and a Pharisee who's supposedly super righteous. And so we read, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice a week. I give tithing of all that I possess. Now, as a side note, they did. The Pharisees did fast twice a week. Many of the most pious fasted for two full days a week. That would be on Mondays and Thursdays. And yes, that even includes not having water, even though that would be a health hazard. And they were super strict about this. So when this individual says, I fast twice a week, that really was happening. And you can assume there were people that kind of looked at these individuals as super followers of the law. And so Jesus draws this out where this individual is praying, and he's talking about, look how awesome I am. And then in verse 13, we read the prayer of the publican. The publican standing afar off would not lift so much as his eyes unto heaven, but he smote upon his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Jesus is teaching that principle of, don't think that you're great. Come to the Lord of heaven with humility, and he will bless you. And so after that exchange of those two prayers, the rest of the material in Luke 18, we have covered. We've talked about Luke 18, 15 through 30, about suffering the little children, the certain ruler, the eye of the needle, We've talked about Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection. But then we come to this story of Bartimaeus. Now, Bartimaeus is probably just son of Timaeus. You see, in Aramaic, bar means son of. And so, Bartimaeus should probably be read as the son of Timaeus. His name is only occurring in the Gospel of Mark. So, in the Matthew narrative, it shifts to two blind men. In Luke 18.35, we read that there was this blind man, by the way, begging. Now remember, they're going down into Jericho. Jericho is down low, very low, below sea level. So picking up in Mark 10.46, they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, which is what Bartimaeus means, sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry, and he said, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he would hold his peace. But he cried the more a great deal, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And I really like this commentary from Lambert and Krakow where they write this. They write, Consider, for instance, the remarkable account of Bartimaeus, sitting by the roadside just outside of Jericho, begging from the passers-by, hearing the shuffle and shouts of an approaching crowd, discerning in the passing hubbub one name repeated again and again, realizing, crying out of his own darkness into the dust and confusion of his highway, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. The people of the crowd looking down on this negligible bit of human flotsam, telling him to be quiet, to hold his peace, but Bartimaeus persisting cries all the louder. It is easy to see what an imaginative writer might do with such possibilities, but listen to the absolute simplicity of Mark's conclusion of these events and feel the power of his narrative. Jesus stood still, and he commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What will that I should do unto thee? And the blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. That phrase, in the way, is a common phrase in the Gospel of Mark. The early Christians were called those that were in the way. And that word in the Greek is chodos. And that idea of followers of the way, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light, in a way no pun intended. This man followed Jesus in the way. To me, I read that as he became a follower of Jesus. It's a very simple story, the way it's told. But I love that Jesus asked this question, what do you want me to do for you? Or another way he could ask it is, what is wanted? And if you think about this, if you can answer that question about your life, if you can really think about your life and and think, okay, what is it that I really want? And then if you could communicate that to the Lord, what would it be? And I think that is a fundamental question in our ascent. We, we have to ascend to God and part of that is knowing what we want. And I really can see the Lord standing, looking at me and saying, Mike, what do you want? And I've got to search my heart and figure that out. That is a fundamental question that the Savior asks us. Us understanding who we are who Jesus is, and making our ascent back into God. And with that, we thank you for sharing your time with us this week. We will see you next week when we cover Matthew chapters 21 through 23, Mark 11, Luke 19 and 20, and John chapter 12.
0: Thanks, and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.